welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady, and I'm here with Oak Lou Wise, who's also president of All Metals and Forge Group. If you're looking for open die forgings and seamless rolled rings for things like those gears behind us, check out steelforge.com. Joining us today is Dr. Chris Keel. Dr. Keel is an economist with Armada Corporate Intelligence with a sense of humor, which is a real plus for an economist. Chris, thanks for being back again. Oh, you're so welcome. I think that's basically that I'm funny looking, um, but you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll kind of go from there. So, uh, you know, we were talking before the show and we have experienced that Lou and I over the last couple of weeks, we just put together our manufacturing outlook issue for May and got that out in the street. You're a writer for that. And all that revolves around nobody knows what's going on with this recession, expansion, inflation, stagflation, whatever is happening. What's your take? Yeah, and that's putting the finger right on the issue is that nobody really knows. Um, I was talking right before the show about the World Economic Forum commissioning a survey trying to get consensus. So they asked like 100 economists what they thought was happening somehow forgetting the old economic joke that if you put five economists in a room, you're going to get five different opinions, six if one's from Harvard. So they were hoping that they would get consensus. What they got was 45% saying, oh, hey, it's going to be a horrible recession. It's going to start in second quarter, may last the whole year. 45% said, nope, we're going to miss it entirely. We probably won't even have a downturn. And then 10% were like, what? What was the question? Um, so sort of typical. And there is literally data to support an optimistic viewpoint. There's data to support a pessimistic viewpoint. I mean, just this last week, we were expecting retail sales to be down. They were up. So to the answer to the question, Again, before the show, pointing out John Kenneth Galbraith's quote that the only function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. Well, well said. <laughs> so it's interesting because we're about to start working on our June issue of Manufacturing Outlook. And for those of you who are not a subscriber, just go to manufacturingoutlook.com. And you can get the most forward-looking, forward-thinking information in the manufacturing space. And that publisher statement is going to be about a soft expansion. But you're taking mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that that's probably pretty accurate. To be honest, this country is so large that at any given moment, you've got a sector in recession, you've got a sector in expansion. And when you ask the question, is there gonna be a recession? The appropriate response is, what business are you in? I mean, if you're in automotive right now, if you're in aerospace right now, you're experiencing a boom. Both of those sectors are doing better than they've done probably in 10 years. If you're in the hospitality business, that isn't such a pleasant story because you're still seeing recovery from 2020. If you are in the retail sector, it depends on what part of the retail sector you're in. Um, so we're looking at a kind of a, a mixed bag and it's important for companies to sort of figure out where am I really? You know, Do I depend on exports? 
who are my customers? Uh, are the customers in a good place or a bad place? I'm in Kansas, and right now the agricultural sector is expecting a pretty good year. We've had decent weather. The harvest predictions are pretty upbeat, and that's going to be a good news statement for people who are in the business of manufacturing agricultural equipment. If that changes, which it frequently does in the middle of the summer, you know, it'll affect the the outlook for that that kind of purchasing. So the the difficult part of it is that everybody has to really focus on their own niche. And a lot of the information that they get is national. So it's like, well, that's useful kind of, but it doesn't really affect my business and it doesn't really affect the group that I'm interacting with. It's an interesting point that you bring up, uh, Chris, in that um, I've been following the Institute of Supply Management for multiple decades. And uh, typically, All Metals and Forge Group has tracked along with their numbers. Their numbers were up, we were up. Their numbers were down, we were down. This past six months or so, uh, their numbers have been uh, contracting and then less con going up, but less contracting, but nonetheless contracting. Mm -hmm. And we're not, go our numbers are not in sync with their numbers. Right. We, we've had, uh, you know, we had a record year last year. Uh, we rolled into 2023 and we are tracking at the same numbers or better. Uh, but then again, in the month of April, we contracted. We were ahead of where we were, but not as fast. So the numbers, you're right. Depend, you know, if I was a hot dog stand, I might be talking a different hot dog. Right, right. I mean, and that's exactly the experience. I mean, the PMI numbers got back above 50 this last month. They had been lower. But even within the subsectors, you know, you're seeing differences in new orders. You're seeing differences on the export side. We were talking right before the show that the one factor that's been really driving everyone nuts has been labor. And it throws off an awful lot of the assumptions. The central bank, the Fed, controls the economy like hitting it with a baseball bat. I mean, there's there's no subtle way to bring inflation down. You're basically raising interest rates, hoping that you take money out of the economy. Many of us maybe remember the 1980s when Paul Volcker decided to destroy inflation by hiking interest rates by 20 points. And people pointed out, Mr. Volcker, sir, that's going to send us into a recession. And his response was cigar clamped firmly between his teeth. Dang right, it'll be a recession, probably three to five years. Get used to it. So, and the way that he put it was about as blunt as possible. He says, you want to control inflation? Raise interest rates. Get everybody fired. If they can't work, they can't make any money. If they can't make any money, they can't spend any. And Therefore, inflation falls. But right now, as much as the Fed has done, the inflation rate isn't changing that much because unemployment hasn't changed. We have a labor shortage, which we've been seeing develop for, oh, I don't know, 30 years. And people are afraid to lay people off, even though they could, because they're well aware that it's going to take them years to find that person again 
if they start to ramp up. I mean, I was talking to a manufacturer. He said, I have a six-figure income guy that's sweeping the floors. I don't want to lose him. So I have nothing for him to do right now, but I'll be danged if I'm going to lose this guy. So it's like, go find something to do. Paint your desk, sweep the floor, make origami, whatever. I can't afford to fire you. Yeah, too hard to hire him back. Chris, I'm yep. beginning to hear words being brought back into the discussion. I think because newscasters are tired of saying recession, 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 recession. So now they're talking about stagflation, which I don't understand. So I, I need you to explain stagflation to us. And is it actually going to happen? It's probably not going to manifest the way that it did back in the 70s. But stagflation is technically impossible. That's when you have simultaneously a decline in the economy and inflation. Inflation, by definition, is expansion. It's too much money in the economy. It's things too hot. And that's why you try to slow it down by taking money out of the economy. But when you're in a recessionary period, that's when you get an impact on the job market and the like. So what you're dealing with now is an economic slowdown at the same time that you have inflation. So you have slowdown and speed up at the same time. And that's not technically supposed to be possible. So what we're really dealing with is not so much stagflation in a classic sense. It's basically a labor market that is ignoring attempts to control the economy. And, and we know why. We know that people are reluctant to fire. We also know that by the end of this decade, every single baby boomer will have reached retirement age, all 76 million of us. We don't have replacements in place, and that's not something we can do quickly. And the boomers have kind of fudged things for a while because we don't have lives, so we just keep working. And But doing that into your 60s and 70s is one thing. You start doing in that in your 80s, and people are like, well, you know, I want to enjoy my golden weeks. Um, I, 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 I don't want to keep working. <laughs> so we're not in a good place as far as replacing that cohort, and that keeps wages high. And then you've got the gig economy that is siphoning people out of the workforce in a way we never expected. It's even gotten hard to count people. You go to somebody who's a Lyft or Uber driver and you ask them, are you working? No. What do you mean, no? I don't have a real job. I don't have a boss. I don't have to report to anybody. If I don't feel like driving tomorrow, I don't drive. But it's still a job. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. We don't know how to count them because they assert that they're unemployed. So that being said, Chris, and um, about retirement, I'm 80 and I'm never going to retire. They're going to carry me out. I think retirement means when they lower the box. Exactly. I'm, I'm kind of with you. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no point in retiring. Uh, it gives me more to do than crocheting and walking the dog and taking up French cooking. Um, point being, um, if we had, and, and I know this is not in your bailiwick or your wheel, wheelhouse, but maybe you'll have a comment or a humorous limerick to address, could a lot of these things that we are experiencing in this country in terms of shortage and so on, 
could that be resolved if we had a real immigration policy? Uh, yes, and it is in my bailiwick because oh. that is a fundamental economic issue. And the challenge that we're dealing with now is our immigration in the past, we had a sufficient number of entry-level jobs that people with limited skills and limited language would have a way to make a living. So we could take people in and then we counted on their children. We were basically saying the next generation of that immigrant is the one that will be coming into our workforce in a more meaningful way because they'll be educated here, the language barrier will be gone, et cetera. Now we're facing the problem that we don't have as many of those entry-level jobs as we used to, and we don't know what to do with a lot of the unskilled, untrained, language-challenged immigrants. That means that we're trying to compete for the immigrant that everybody else wants. So the Europeans, the Asians are all trying to get the people who have those education backgrounds and skills and that becomes the only way to get out of our labor crisis, because obviously we're not going to change the child labor laws, though maybe we could. I mean, right now, we all know that it's the 13-year-old that figures out how to get you off mute on Zoom, you know, just put the kid to work. But at some point, we're going to have to be more aggressive about letting in the people that we need. And the place that that's going to come from if you look at world demographics, will be Africa. Africa's population, 60% of the African population as a whole is under the age of 30, and they're overwhelmingly educated. Those countries committed to education decades ago. And so you now have this wave of people, potentially, that could be coming from select countries in Africa, not the whole place, but Mozambique and Botswana and Ghana and Kenya, places that have been relatively well-developed and aggressive. Are we ready for that immigration surge? At the moment, we're not. We don't have the right policies in place. We're not even good at recruiting. But frankly, that's, that's where the future lies. And as far as the African nations are concerned, we also have racism in this country, which mm -hmm. is a major component of what you're talking about. Absolutely. Uh, and when you talk to the the African nations about that, you know, they're very pragmatic about it. And they said, well, that's true. You have a racism issue to deal with. But understand that you're competing with the Europeans who are also racist. And by the way, they were our colonial masters and we hate them. So you have at least an advantage in the sense that the United States did not make us into colonies. The Brits and the French and the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Germans did. And we remember those days and not fondly. <laughs> well said. Well said. Uh, some uh, decades ago, I think at this point, Chris, uh, a gentleman by the name of Ken Ditchwall wrote a book called The Age Wave. Mm -hmm. And in it, he pointed out that the baby boomers coming out of World War II would be X and behind them would be a birth dearth. So the, the general population would shrink. And then behind that, you would get a birth echo and you'd get somewhat of a rise. Mm -hmm. So now we're experiencing the baby boomers all reaching 65 and we're entering the birth dearth and they're just 
isn't a population there to draw from. And I think the U.S. is now, for the first time in its history, approaching zero population growth where most countries begin to decline. Where are we with that? Yep, we are now in the hands of the millennials and Gen Z. And if that doesn't scare people the age of myself and Lou, um, I don't know what would. Not the Zens or the Gen Zs, whatever the third one is that they haven't given that. No, no, no. The next generation, if you really want to be scared, the one that's coming after Gen Z, because like we've run out of alphabet, is they're being called the digitals. They may not have legs at all. Um, You know, they just, you know, they'll just be all thumbs um but yeah it's it's a challenge because with these cohort changes come cultural changes um and things assumptions that we make based on how way boomers behaved like for example housing the gen z generation a poll taken recently 30 percent of gen z males have no intention of leaving their parents home until they're in their 30s you know, my generation, I remember leaving home and my mother saying, uh, anything you don't take with you will be on the curb on Friday. <laughs> and she meant it. <laughs> so, Yeah, I think we're going to uh, enter a period of, of decline. Now, I know Jap- Japan has gone through this. Oh, definitely. Are they recovering from their birth dearth? No, not at all. And they're in a lot worse shape than we are because they are traditionally anti-immigrant. And so we have had the advantage of being an immigrant nation. We traditionally don't like the immigrant wave until we discover we need them. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, well, the Irish aren't so bad. The Italians, well, you know, they were kind of weird, but now they're fine. Um, And we eventually accept them. Japan if you're of Korean ethnicity, your grandparents can have been born in Japan and you are still Budokumen, you are still an outsider. And it's really affecting Japan. They don't have a consumer system that can drag them out of recession. They've been dealing with deflation for 10 years. And and they're seriously worried. I mean, one third of their population is over 65 now. So that being said, I'm sorry, go ahead, Tim. Well, I was going to say, I know that China instituted some some decades ago, the one child policy, and that has come back to bite them seriously. Oh, seriously. I mean, you now have a a cohort, 54% of the population is male and 46% of the population is female. China openly worries about what happens to men who are unmarriageable. I mean, there are no more women and they're trying to increase immigration, but they're also very hostile towards it. They're looking to sort of lure overseas Chinese to come home. I have several Chinese friends in the U.S. and they're like, you're kidding, right? I'm going to leave my suburb here in, in the United States to go live in a Chinese high No, thank you. Um, so we still have that that ability as far as attracting immigrants, but we have to figure out how to deal with the cultural issues, how to deal with the fact that it's going to be a generation before some of these families are contributors. And you get the hostility that we have uh, towards immigration, sometimes justified. I mean, we're not 
as the Europeans or not. We don't know what to do with thousands of people coming across the border every day, but we're going to need to figure it out. Well, I'd like to introduce now AI, which is uh, yes. I've become kind of an AI person. We're not sure you're real, actually, Lou. Um, you know, we're well, that's true. That's now becoming a problem. And actually, in Congress <laughs> this week, they had one of the senators uh, do a speech to the rest of Congress on a TV screen, uh, a big screen, and it turned out it was not him. And they just tried to demonstrate how scary AI is going to become. Well, then that's, there was that guy that kept having to tell people that he wasn't a cat. And we're like, you know, you obviously <laughs> are. We can see it. Obviously, AI will solve and or create a uh, work problem, employee problem. Uh, you don't want to work. You want to be a Gen Z and sit on your mother's couch. Great. We got a computer that can replicate 10 of you Gen Zs. But what about when it gets to a point where the computers do take over, like Hal from uh, Space Odyssey, evil computer, uh, what happens when they take over? So then you get a book written by, I don't remember the name of the gentleman, The Final Invention, The Death of the Human Race, mm -hmm. uh, which is a scary book. So how does AI fit into all of this? We can always we can always count on Lou to bring up a cheerful subject, um, and you know, especially the, the end, end of the show. the <laughs> end of humanity itself. The limitation of AI. I mean, we're seeing you know Chat GPT and all these different things. And the two weaknesses from a, a business perspective is that everything that AI does, everything that Chat GPT does, is based on past patterns. So it is going to look at what has happened and extrapolate and say, okay, this is what's happening now. That is the very death of innovation. Innovation is predicated on, I don't care what happened in the past. I see the future and I'm going to change the way things are done so that it's improved. You will never get AI to do that because its algorithm is based on past patterns so one of the things we have to be aware of is that it tends to stifle creativity and it also creates problems in terms of interpretation you know i'm quite confident in my business that i will never be replaced by ai because no computer will want to be as wrong as often as i am and therefore they'll reject the entire idea of being an economist it will basically say this is the most ridiculous way to make money imaginable um, I couldn't agree more. So there'll always be a space for that kind of speculative thinking where you're throwing out options. It's interesting to watch how the military has tried to use AI because they will move away from it the minute a battle starts. And they said, we'll use it up to the point that the battle begins and then unpredictability takes over. It's amazing how the enemy doesn't do what you ask them to do. It's like, you know, according to our studies, you're supposed to be over here. Well, we don't want to be over here. We're going to attack you from the back. Oh, then I better rethink my plan. And so AI ends up getting you right up to the point where it matters. And then it kind of leaves you in the lurch. 
Well, Lou, we're, uh, we're pretzel. No, no, I, excuse me. I got to do one last point. I got to counterpoint, <laughs> counterpoint you. Uh, the AI in the book, The Final Invention, the biggest fear in this 300-page book is that what happens when the computer, like Hal, has the ability to turn itself on? Right. That's when we're all in deep do trouble. Yes. Yes. That's that's why <laughs> that's, that's why we need to we need to pay attention to Stanley Kubrick and you know he's warned us about everything you know between. 2001 and and you know, let's not forget his his mob rule movies <laughs> so <laughs> so we're now going to rechristen lou as gloom and doom weiss um and and we'll how about gloom and doom lou there you go it's i like that even better see that's great because usually it's the economist that's gloom and doom and now i can hand it off and so there you go i, I wear this badge of honor timmy well, Chris, we appreciate you being with us and adding to the levity of a heavy subject. I really appreciate the depth of knowledge you have in the area, and I hope that our listeners and viewers uh, tune into your shows often. We have them once a month. And Chris is a writer for Manufacturing Outlook that we publish monthly. It's a free subscription at manufacturingoutlook.com. And as always, thanks everyone for being with us on this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Tim. And we'll see you next month. Thank you, Gloom and Doom and Tim. <laughs>